Yep, that's right. It's a Robcast. And I have here with me Nate Staniforth. That's right. All the way from... Iowa City, Iowa. Iowa City, Iowa. <laughs> uh, Robcast friends, I recently read, read Nate Staniforth's book. It's your first book? It is. The book is called Here is Real Magic, A Magician's Search for Wonder in the Modern World. So you know that this guy and I are already working for the same business, just in different departments. <laughs> I felt that way yeah. about this. Um, oh, we're doing similar things. We've given ourselves to, to similar crafts just a few offices over in some way. Wow. I had this... So I want you to talk about your book, but I would probably talk about your book. Yeah, <laughs> just I'm just glad much. to be here. I'm... Okay, so um, you're a working magician. Yeah. You started... This was your job. This has always been your job. I've never had a real job other than working as a magician. Yeah, it's just. <laughs> and I love in the book how you take us back to like nine. Yeah, yeah. I got started, you know. But I sort of think once you know, you know, why you're here and what you're chasing, you just you have to do it. You have to run at Absolutely. it as fast as you can. And I just I knew from a really young age that this is what I wanted. I wanted to chase this as hard as I can. Did your parent? Did you use the phrase "professional magician" with your parents? That is a phrase that strikes deep fear into parents. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I grew up. I grew up in Ames, Iowa, and and no one in the history of Ames, Iowa, has done anything remotely like becoming a professional magician. It wasn't like leaving town to join the circus. It was like becoming the circus. And uh, yeah, it took a while, I think, for them to wrap their minds around the fact that this is what I was going to do. And you were serious about it. Very deadly serious, yeah. Did they push against that? No, no, they were wonderful. So that you, you grew up in a home where this is what I want to do, okay. Uh, I mean, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. But, um, you know, I and, and rightly so, I think any parent who learned that their child was going to have a career as a professional entertainer of any kind would pause and wonder if that was really going to lead to the happiest most fulfilling yes. life you know yes. show, show business is brutal yes the entertainment industry is brutal i wouldn't wish that on my children so i think i think for the best of reasons there was some concern and some worry but sometimes you know something about yourself that you can't prove by any other way other than just doing it yes and i knew that this was for me and that i was for it and I, I could make everyone else feel okay about it just by doing it. Oh, that's so well said. Your your path is your answer. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, in the intro to the book, Here is Real Magic by Nate Staniforth. We're going to say that as many times as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I, I think I read the book in like two sittings. Wow. It's absolutely riveting. You're a very good writer. Thank you. Which is... Uh, which is difficult to do. You're doing this show, and you pick this total brosif. Yeah. You pick a guy out, the most cynical. Right. Uh, let's say hard-hearted, non-participant in the crowd. Right. And you have him be your volunteer. Right. And you do this whole thing with numbers, and at the end, he's the one who has to read the numbers printed on the ticket. And you have him at the microphone, and then he does these numbers based on this thing you've done that there's no way the crowd right. 
And then you you uh, you describe what it's like when the we don't call it a trick. Trick is fine. Some magicians get hung up on that. I don't. Illusion, you know, it works as well. So the illusion comes to its fulfillment, its consummation, with this guy Marcus, who was previously your greatest skeptic. Right. Reading these numbers, there's no way possibly anybody could have ever had these numbers this way. He does it, and then this is what you write. Like I'm telling you. <laughs> the room explodes. I don't know how else to say it. One moment, 300 people are leaning forward in a dead quiet, straining to understand what's happened. Then Marcus reads the numbers, and panic surges through the room as if a fire is breaking out. People are on their feet, screaming and jumping and turning to each other, to one another. Some are laughing. Someone runs for the exit, knocking over a table. Jessica has her hands on her face, her mouth open. Marcus has dropped the microphone. He is reading the ticket over and over again, shaking his head and laughing. I want you to see his face. I want you to see his joy, the open, unaffected joy. I'm going to read the whole book if I keep this up. It's the kind of joy that reminds you that what you mistook for dull, uninspired brutishness a moment before was actually just weight, the weight of worry, of pain, of anxiety, of the world. And for a moment, it has gone, and the face that shines without it, it ex is extraordinary. Mag magicians get to see people at the very best. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, you know. We all carry around this, our own, our own little piece of the weight of the world. And once in a while, something happens to take it away, and we yeah. don't feel that weight. Yeah. And that's what magic is for me. It's a way to temporarily, certainly, um, dissipate that or, or, or help people see around it. Um, you know, it's not solving any problems, but it's just, it's another way of remembering that there's more to the world and more to your life in the world than the sum of your anxieties and fears and worries and, uh, and, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Magicians get to see people at, uh, at their... It, it's, when, when you see something that you can't explain, you forget to be cool for a moment. Think of how much performing Correct. we all do. Correct. The clothes we wear, the words we choose, the way we carry ourselves, we're all giving off the, the aura that we want the world to pick up. And when you see something impossible, y you just don't have the mental bandwidth to keep that up. So for a moment, that facade just drops. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons that I struggle with a career as a magician. But, but every time I go on stage, I get that gift of, of seeing an audience totally unguarded. And it's beautiful. I uh, roamed around YouTube watching you do your thing. That is a slippery slope, Rob. What is... What's the most, uh, what would be for us the most interesting or surprising or unique reaction you've uh, gotten to something you've done that stands out over the years? Let me say this. When I finished writing this book, I, I worried a little bit that people would think I had, I, had made I had made magic sound more compelling than it was in real life, right? It's easy. To, you, can, you can use whatever words you want when you write a book. So I wanted to create something that would show that, that, that would back up you know, the ideas that I'm presenting in the book. So I asked the warden of a maximum security prison 
if I could go perform magic for for the hardest criminals, the guys who were there for life. And it took a little managing to make that work, but I ended up going in and doing magic for these guys. And I, I will remember this for the rest of my life because when I walked into the room, they wanted nothing to do with me. Their arms were crossed. They, you know, they didn't even want to make eye contact. But, but it was just like a switch flipped. As soon as, <laughs> as soon as the first piece of magic happened, it was like they were little kids again. And, and the, you know, the 20 minutes or so that followed from that, like that will stay with me forever. They, at the end, one of them was literally hopping up and down and laughing. And I just, I had, you know, I have seen people, resp- every magician in the world, it's not just me, every magician in the world has the experience of, of um, seeing an audience respond um, well to, to a piece of magic. But there's something about going into the toughest, most aggressive place I could find and having it still hold true there that, that resonated with me. I felt very fortunate to be able to be there. It's interesting how often when you talk about what you do, there's like a loop. Even in, 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 as you take us through your, uh, I don't know, career? I, I, that word sounds so weird. Career you know what I mean? Yeah, right. When it's... I talk about my work, I'm, people talk about career. I'm like, what are you, who? who are, you ta- are you talking about me? Because I don't ever think about that way. But uh, it's interesting there are these loops, almost like a sine wave of uh, you work, working through your own piece with what you're doing, then it goes out to others, but then it comes back. Like it's your, you are constantly having to sort it out for yourself yeah. before you can then give it away. Yeah. What is it that I'm doing? Right. How does this work in me? Almost like you have to keep recovering your own amazement before you can then go around and give that to others. Audiences know when you're lying to them. And especially with magic, which is a craft that everyone assumes is built on deception. You, you oh, have to be honest. You have to, you have to be absolutely honest. You have to treat magic as fiction. You're not fooling the audience any more than a novelist is fooling the audience by building a believable world so oh, that they can get pulled in. You know, I don't, I don't ever want an audience to feel like I'm cheating them or I'm fooling them. Uh, I'm trying to share something with them. So, so the, um, oh, the, the magician is just deceiving you. No, the, ma- the magician has to be authentic at some higher level right. in order for you to allow yourself to be deceived or whatever, you, however you want to say it. Right. It's almost like, it's like poetry, you know? You know a, a poet doesn't have to speak literal truth to give you something true. Yes. And I'm just trying to do that with magic tricks. One of the things I found fascinating, your uh, respect and awareness of this craft, this tradition, yeah. that you're coming from a long line of people, that what you're doing, that the trade that you're working, uh, you're standing on the shoulders of a, a number of people. And I was like, you have, please talk to me about David Burglass, because you take us through Houdini, yeah. and how then... Houdini died in 1926, making way for David Burglass, yeah. who becomes this international man of mystery. Yeah. So I, of course, went out and had to read all about David Burglass. Of course, yeah. Um, who, who, he makes the piano disappear in London yeah. in front of a crowd of people. Surrounded. So, well, people are surrounding a grand piano, and he makes the piano disappear. That's right. Like, uh, so Burglass, for me, is just... But then you 
go to London and you meet him in his home. That's right. He, Which must have been like a, a huge moment. It was one of the hugest moments. This is the Houdini of the past hundred years or whatever. He, he wrote, a, and, and the thing about David Burgess that's interesting is at the height of his fame and power, he could have done anything. And he, he retired. And he said, I have a family. I want my family to have a normal life. I'm just going to, I've had a great career. I'm going to stop. So the greatest magician in the world, just he's taking his kids to school? I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time picturing it too. But, but he, he had invented magic that even the greatest magicians in the world couldn't explain. And, and there other are, magicians other could magicians, figure out how he did it. And they would fly to the United Kingdom to watch him perform. And, and you can read some of their letters to each other now that have come out. that They're, they're trying to take apart his methods to understand his work, and they can't do it. Uh, he's, he is a, a genius and, and invented his own approach to magic that was, that was so different than the, the type of work that other people were doing that no one, no one could explain it. But, but he ended up writing a book teaching his methods and I read this when I was a student in college, and, and very quickly, that's all I cared about, cared about. I was a terrible student after that because I just studied that book so often. But, um, you know, for a few years, I, I came up with a list of questions and then wrote to him and said, I, I will meet you anywhere in the world if we can meet and talk about your book. Um, would, would you mind talking with me? And I, I included my phone number, and a few weeks later, I got a phone call. And he said, you know, I... You know, sometimes when the phone rings and you know who it is before the person, <laughs> before you answer it, it, it was David Burglis, and he invited me over to his house north of London to talk about magic. And so, yeah, so I went, and it was, I will remember that night forever. So you walk up to the front door, just like, I cannot believe this is happening. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they say never to meet your heroes. And without exception, that has not been true for me. Yeah, I, I, I think I've studied his work more than I've studied anyone's work. And, and the time I spent with him was just, it was such a joy um, discovering that this person was as intelligent and as, as thoughtful and cared about it as much as, as the book made it seem. Okay, I know it's your book, but can I just read what happens here? <laughs> sure. And I don't want to give it away because people only get, need to read the whole book themselves. But I'm just, you talk about meeting him at his home in London. Nate, he said before opening the door to his dining room, where we would spend the next five hours talking about magic. You're married, aren't you? I am. What is your wife's name? Catherine. Very good, he said. And of course you would know if she has a favorite flower. She does. Peonies. Something happened then, and I'm not sure exactly what. Something shifted. He looked me directly in the eye, and even before he opened the door, I understood why he was the greatest magician in the world. He had moved slowly as we walked down the hall, but now he was doing magic. He stood straight, filled with energy, and his words carried a weight that I have never been able to replicate. Let's sit in here, he said, as he opened the door to the dining room. Inside, I saw a large mahogany table with a vase at the center. The vase was filled with peonies. I love this room because it offers such a nice view of the garden, he said, as he crossed the room and pulled aside the curtains, revealing a garden filled with peonies, two rows of lush green bushes covered with white blooms. I felt my knees go weak, and I sat down quickly in one of the chairs. I have seen great magic performed by great magicians all over the world, but I never felt like this before. This magic felt 
real. He sat down across from me and folded his hands in front of him. I hope you'll tell Catherine about the flowers and give her my regards. <laughs> oh, come on. Right. Come now, on. Let, let me say this. That was in 2013. I have thought about <laughs> that moment every day since then. I can't get over it. I just can't get over it. And I've talked to, since then, I've talked to some of the greatest magicians in the world about that moment. And no one has any idea what he's done. Okay, that's my question. When you see other magicians, are you like, what percentage of the time do you want, what percentage of their act do you have a pretty good idea how they pulled it off? Um, you know, I think... Can you talk about this? Is there a code? Sure. Will no, you get it, in trouble with the it, International it, Magician it, Association or whatever there is? It's fine. The it's guild? A, I think magicians love... You know, one of the problems with magic is that you get into it because you love that sense of wonder and astonishment. Oh, and oh, oh, got it. And and one of the, the problems is that as you get better at sharing that with people through the craft of magic, it becomes harder to find it when you watch other magicians because you might have a professional appreciation of what they're doing, but it's harder and harder to yeah. to be taken all the way uh, to the mountaintop. With because them. you know too much about the mechanics behind the right. thing. So so once oh, in a while, right. you see something that you just can't explain. and Which probably makes it pop with yeah, a little more. Yeah, you just treasure burst. those moments, yeah. So, so literally, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Truly. I don't know, and no one I've talked and to And you knows. talk to other magician friends yeah. who know this stuff. Yes. And you're like, Burglis, ask me my wife's What's flowers. What's going on, yeah. My told him he doesn't know your wife. Your <laughs> wife's in Iowa. Right. He's in London asking you yeah. about your wife's favorite flowers. Right. You tell him. Now, so let me just tell you the rest of the story. So I after that after that um, Yes, I have it written here, but okay. tell it. So I, I spent five hours at the Burglars residence and then I went back and I sat at a bar for a while and you know, tried to write down all the details so I wouldn't forget because one of the things with magic is it's easy to misremember the details. So I wanted to write down everything that happened right away so I could remember it as accurately as I could. And when I called Catherine to, to tell her about this incredible thing, she said, Nate, that's impossible. I said, you know, of course, I know it was impossible. She says, no, you don't understand. This is October, and peonies only ever bloom in May. <laughs> I was inconsolable. <laughs> inconsolable. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah. I, that that's just about as good as it gets for me. But. Man, oh man. Okay, um, there's so many things I, I want to ask you about. We got to go to this section on the straight jacket, where you put yourself in a straight jacket. You play uh, Beethoven's uh, Sonata Sonatina, Sonatina Number Two and yeah. F. You play this song while you get out of a strike well, So it's just, it's playing on the loudspeaker, right? Right. right. I mean, yeah, like you're not right. playing it like... That would you know, be impressive. That would yeah. be impressive. Um, by the way, you say right here, the secret to getting out of a straight jacket, you just do it? That's true. Is I was like, wait, he's giving away the secret, but there is no... Really, like a straight jacket is just effort. Right. And practice. And uh, some misery, yeah. <laughs> so that magic trick... When we're watching it, it just is what it appears. You know, I think I think it would surprise you sometimes when you watch a magic show, how often things that look fake are actually real, or at least mostly real, and some things that look real are fake. You know, there's a lot of um, blurring of those lines that happens. Yeah. So, the song is playing. You're writhing on the floor, trying to get out. 
but you tell about the audiences drowning out the music. Half of them, maybe, are with me, but half were very much against me. Uh, Where had this anger come from? Yeah. Is this a regular experience where a crowd... Is this something you feel energetically, or you just hear them yeah, you cheering can, against you? Yeah, you know, I do they like you up to this point? I I would say that that story was pretty early in my career. Oh, got it. When I was maybe dealing with, um, uh, I was dealing with more than I could handle as a performer. But I will say that as a magician, you do you run up against this conflict in the human spirit between our simultaneous um, urge to revel in the unknown and also to master and destroy it, right? Yes. And and some people in the audience see something that they can't explain, and they they can appreciate the beauty of sitting in that mystery for a moment. And some people are really threatened by it, and and see it as a, an affront to their um, their cosmology and their understanding of the world. And they're not when when you know, when when they see something they can't explain, they have to come up with an answer, uh, or or else or else I don't know. Everything, um, it it it, uh, it is an unpleasant experience yeah, rather yeah, than a yeah, pleasant yeah. experience. What's interesting, it presents itself as a sort of intellectual rigor, yeah. but at some level, it's a primitive reptilian brain that anything unknown is a threat, basic threat assessment. Be be very fearful. Right. Um, you wrote, you write this, the anger, and I do believe it is anger, toward the modern magician comes from the way even a simple magic trick done well can reach uninvited into the deepest hopes of a person. Sometimes this can be an uncomfortable reminder. People have hard lives. And something like magic that promises a moment of real joy or even a new way of seeing the world threatens to unseat whatever insulation they have managed to erect between themselves and that hardness, whether it's cynicism, nihilism, escapism, or elitism. The cultural resentment towards magic comes from the sadness found in the space between the universal human longing to believe in magic and the overwhelming evidence all around us that there is no such thing. It's not that a modern audience doesn't want magic. It's that they want it so badly, but I've already decided it's not out there. And dislike being told that maybe they were looking in the wrong place. Yeah. That's, that's seriously beautiful right there. And true and profound. Yeah it's, yeah, it's something you have to treat with great respect on stage. Because if, oh. if you are going to... If, if I'm going to chase these ideas and, and share with the audience what I want to share with them, it, you have to recognize and account for the fact that for some people, um, is a really, um, it's a, it, it feels like a dangerous subject, or it feels like something that um, maybe reminds them of something that they don't want to be reminded of. You know, I think a great magician is never um, giving you a new experience. They're reminding you of something that you've always known and maybe just forgot somewhere along the way. And... On my good nights, I can contextualize that as a gift, and I think for some people in the audience, they don't—they're not ready for that gift, or they don't want it. So, uh, how much? Uh, I'm sure you have sort of rituals you go through when you're up there. 
how much can you read about a particular audience emotionally or energetically or can you walk out and be like, oh, this is, oh, interesting. This yeah. has a feel. This has a shape. This from from the moment I'm walking on stage, and I mean, you, you you speak in front of groups, so I'm sure you can relate to this in your own way. Like even the opening applause tells you a lot about the room. Is it is it louder than you would expect from an audience of that size? That means they're already excited. It, is it is it softer than you would expect? Are there people calling out loud who maybe want attention that you're going to have to deal with later? Like from right, right, from yeah. the moment, even from before I walk on stage and they're reading my introduction. I'm trying to figure out who is this, this sort of amorphous animal Correct. of the audience. That who, I've never assembled before. Right, this, right. <laughs> and, and, this and is their first time being a crowd. How can, I, how can I share with them, share with them as a unique group, not as just the same audience that I always see? How can I share with them um, this thing that I want to share? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, uh, there's a parsing I always notice. There's a difference between volume and physical expression, and uh, har uh, what else is happening in the room. Yeah. So this this audience is s maybe slightly less volume-wise loud, but wow, just waves of love. Right. You can feel it, can't you? Oh, oh yeah. It's just so interesting how all these different things. Spe speaking of <coughs> what you said about this respect, uh, you talk about this lady who leaves a show, a woman leaves the show earlier. Page 152, for those of you keeping <laughs> score at home. She leaves a show early, visibly upset. Yeah. And then you're on your way out to the car, and she's waiting for you. And she said, I felt spiritual energy all around you. Uh, I want you to know that what you're doing is incredibly dangerous. You are opening yourself up to an awful power that I don't think you understand. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to explain how uh, you say there were illusions? Do you want me to explain how it worked? I offered no. Those powers are very real. She said, before turning to leave, you have to be very careful. Yeah, I get that sometimes. I remember early in my career, there was a protest about one of my shows because some people didn't like that I was going to pr be pretending to do magic. And you know, on one hand, I can I can sympathize with that, but I think. You know, I don't want anyone to believe that I have supernatural powers. I don't. And I'm, I'm the protest was where? Uh, it was in South Dakota. The protest was about a magician in general? It was about well, yeah, I was the magician, but yeah. yeah. No magic. Right. At all. I think they had found out that I was doing some tricks that would look like mind reading. And um yeah. Yeah. Is that a normal thing in no, places in the no, world? No, it's only happened one time to me. In all the years you've been doing this. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I, it it sort of telegraphed to me that, um, you know, as we were speaking about a moment ago, um, for some people they see what I'm doing as a, as a way of, um, as I intend it, which is I have something that I think will be valuable to you. Let me share it with you. Um, sometimes it it doesn't feel that way. So. Okay, the book, we're we're following you, and you're taking us through your life and work as a magician, but India, yeah, it's almost like a sun rising. It just gradually takes over. Right. And would you say something begins to form it? I need to get away. I need to reset. I need to think this all up again. Yeah, I became really... I, I started touring the year I left school. 
and you know my wife and I had just gotten married um, but I, I had to be on the road all the time just because I you know we were, it's hard to get a career off the ground and I wanted to make this work and we needed the money and so I was just gone all the time and I did that for one year and then I did it for another year and then I did it for another year and another year and I just I became totally disillusioned and burned out I got into magic because I loved the experience of wonder. Even before I knew there were such things as magic tricks, I loved the experience yes. of feeling awe and yeah. mystery. And I got into magic because I discovered at a really young age that you can share that experience with people through magic tricks. But as a professional magician touring around the country, you know, I'd, I'd spend 14 hours traveling before I'd ever get to the theater and then I'd set up and I'd do the show and I'd tear down the show and I'd go sleep for four hours and then I'd do it again and again and again and again and again. And I remember after years of this, I was on stage in Milwaukee at, uh, at Marquette University. I hope they've forgiven me. And in the middle of the show, I just stopped and I, I walked off stage and said, you know, I hope you had a good time, but I'm, uh, I gotta go. And I went back to my hotel room wondering if this ship was sinking, mm -hmm. if I'm just gonna be done. That I had worked so hard to get here, this is what I thought I wanted, and it wasn't actually what I wanted. On tour, and I'm, I'm sure you've discovered this as well, there's a lot of time in airports and airplanes sure. and sitting backstage, yeah. and you can only play so much Angry Birds. And, and I just end up reading a lot of books. Mm -hmm. And on this particular leg of the tour, I just happened to be reading this academic text about uh, the traditional street magicians of India. Just very briefly, every culture in the world has its own traditional form of magic, just like it's traditional food, it's traditional art, it's traditional music. Magic is a cultural expression as much as anything. And, and so I was reading these accounts of the magic that, that had developed in India, and I, I just I started dreaming about this sort of... It felt like a crazy idea. Like, what if I just walk away from my career as an entertainer? What if I just abandon that? and, and uh, forget everything I know about being a professional magician and, and try to dream it all up again. So I ended up doing that, and I, I went um, you know, from Iowa to India with the, with the That's mission. That's a great sentence. <laughs> yeah. the, the goal was I wasn't looking for tricks. I was looking for magic. I wanted to find anything that would help me connect with that experience of, of wonder again. And, you know, it sounds sort of quixotic and, and ridiculous, but you have to remember that my job was as a magician. And, and as we've discussed, a magician has to believe in the magic or it isn't magic. And so I felt not only a personal pressure, but also just a, like a deep, urgent need to, to chase these ideas wherever they led. And they had already led <laughs> around the U.S., you know, on this crazy tour. And so going to India didn't seem like didn't seem like that big of a jump. You, you're there and you meet this man who tells you, uh, you are a chumanthar? Yeah. He said, you are a child's magician doing tricks. And those things are of a very, he searched for a kind way to say it. Those are things of a lower level. Those magics performed by a chumanthar distract from the real journey. What is the real journey, I asked. 
He leaned back and looked at the ceiling, trying to find a way to begin. Sometimes you feel as if you have everything, he said at last. You have health, you have a good mind, you have money, you have prominence, you have all of this, and still you are restless. This happens many times, does it not? He looked at me pointedly and I nodded. You came to my door and have come around the world to India because you are restless. Why? Why are you restless? I started to say something, but he held up his hand. You are restless because you are looking for truth and you cannot find it. You are restless because you cannot find the truth through your five senses alone. Your five senses show you the outside world, and you cannot find the truth in the outside world, and so you must go within. Yeah. Come on, Nate, stand up for it. <laughs> That's just fantastic. Um, but then the man says to you, our approach is very also very scientific. We accept nothing on belief alone. We don't have faith in anything. We have no dogma. Ours is a very practical tradition. We pursue the mysticism of the world through direct experience of our own consciousness, and our tradition approaches this mystery scientifically. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Don't even get me started. This, um, so you've heard about this group, family, tribe? Yeah. Was it, uh, yeah, they called themselves a tribe. I think a it was tribe. a collection of families. Now, magicians all over the world know about this tribe. That's right. Because this tribe in India is legendary for the... They, they traced their lineage back 3,000 years, passing their secrets down from father to son, father to son. And, you know, just to be honest, some of their, their illusions look like they're 3,000 years old and weren't particularly <laughs> amazing. Mm -hmm. but, but some of them... Um, I, I just, I can't explain. And, and in the seventies, they, uh, the, the Indian government outlawed their particular kind of street performing. They used to be a nomadic tribe that would travel around the country, but now they live in this slum outside New Delhi. And I had read about this particular tribe in that academic, academic text, text I was reading. Yeah. And, and on my trip, I wanted to find them. And I did find them, and I went into their Because the slum. whole book, the whole trip, were leading up to this. Yeah. I don't want to give it away too much, but you're going to read the book anyway. So you eventually find them. Did you think you could find them? Yeah. Before I left on my trip, I sent an email to the author of the book I had been reading, mm -hmm. explaining that I was going to India. And, and I just asked, have you kept in touch with any of these people? Would you be willing to facilitate an introduction? And I don't know what he did, but I knew that I was supposed to be on a particular street corner on a particular day, at a particular time, and the the leader of that tribe would would find me there, and then we could talk. There's like a billion people, and he finds you. Yeah. On that street corner, on that yeah. time. Um, you get with them, and they ask you to do some tricks. Right. Are you calm? Are you nervous? Are Do you feel confident? Do you feel silly? I, I will, like, let, let me say it this way. The the slum it was called, it's called Shadapur Depot. I had never been in any environment like that before. Yeah. It, I was shell shocked. Mm -hmm. the The poverty was was worse than I not only than I knew, but than I could even imagine. Mm -hmm. And 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 yet here was this family who who lived in the middle of it and embraced me as like a, a long-lost son who had finally come home. All we had in common was magic, but that was enough. And, you know, I spent the whole day with them talking about our craft, and some of the pieces in my show have their roots in their tradition, and so they were, 
they were amused to see my versions of their tricks. And oh, right, right. Then I got to see the way that they did it. And, and you know, I, I went to India thinking that what I was looking for was, was to watch these performances. And I watched them, and they were amazing. But, but what I discovered instead was that far more amazing than any of the individual illusions that I saw was, was the process of actively searching for wonder, right? The thing that travel and magic both have in common is that they can both deliver this cataclysmic death blow to your sense of certainty and yes. and your role in the world, right? When right. you see something impossible right. or when you're standing immersed in the Ganges River as it comes out of the Himalayan mountains, it, it, you, you, you can't hold your current reality yes. and the way you used to th see things together in your mind at the same time. So everything just falls apart. And, and you know, I met this tribe of, of magicians and their magic was amazing. But, but what I remember from that day most of all was interacting with their kids and, and the feast that they cooked for me afterwards and, and speaking on a human level rather than just as one magician to another. Uh, they do some of their trick, whatever you call them, at the end. Yeah. For you, which you've read about and heard about. Right. Were you watching it, thinking, "Oh, I know how they do that," or were there moments of, I sensed that that it was such a different category, that you weren't watching them going, "Oh yeah, I know how they pulled that off." Right. I mean, as I mentioned. A moment ago, some of the magic looked like it was three thousand yes. years old. Yeah, that's and, what I find and, interesting. And it wasn't. Well, I think context is important. Yes, um, we were we were in the middle of the worst poverty. Yes, imaginable. Yeah, and one of the pieces of magic was the magician um, putting a bowl behind his back, and when he brought it out, it was filled with sweets that he gave to the kids. So the point was not necessarily that he was making them appear, but just the presence of dessert, yes. like that. If you can't find wonder in in food, you're, yeah, not, you're right, not looking right. hard enough, right? Right. right. Uh, but but then, you know, the the patriarch of the tribe was this 82 year old man, and one of the illusions in my show is this piece where I swallow a length of thread, and swallow uh, a number of sewing needles, and then I regurgitate the the thread, and the needles are are threaded along the the string. So they watched me perform that, and their response was sort of like, that's adorable. Would you like to see the way we do it? And so I saw this 82-year-old man show me his mouth was totally empty. And I know how this works. It, his mouth was empty. And then he closed his mouth and, and sort of started groaning. And when he opened his mouth, it was filled, not with sewing needles, but just a mouthful of thorns that were two or three inches thick. And he did that over and over and over again until there was a pile of thorns at his feet but he wasn't done. Then he closed his mouth one more time and just made eye contact with me like this. And he breathed out through his nose and smoke came out of his nose. And then he took a deep breath in and in three coughing bursts, one, two, three, shot this jet of flame from his mouth. And I just, I, I just started laughing and I couldn't stop. Like, I, I have no idea how he did that. I know how my version of the needle trick works. And it, it does not allow <laughs> at all for fire breathing at the end of it. And so The flames would be impressive. <laughs> the thorns is inexplicable. Right. And he did, the thorns were the, were the opening It's like band. the opening act. Yeah, just to soften me up. <laughs> and you as a, 
you've been doing this a while and have been studying this. You are like, yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. But that's what I'm talking about. Like, so often when I see magic, I, I can begin to understand how they're doing it. Yeah. And, and that's disappointing. So I love it when... Absolutely. When I see something that I can't explain. Now, let's bring us up to the present. The kind of... Because now you're in Iowa. Yeah. Do you have like a room in your house? What's a magician do in the morning? Take your kids to school? I do. Then you have some breakfast? Then you... Yeah, go running, do some reading. Then do you have a space that you yeah, rehearse? Yeah, got a nice studio there. But a, it, magi- a magician has a studio. That's right. And it's a room in your house? It's in the garage? Um, yeah, I've got the the lower level of our house is my studio. And I've got a workshop there so I can build all of the secret stuff that I use in my show. And it's, I've got a rehearsal place and I've got all my books and some whiteboards. And You have tools. Yeah. So sometimes, like your wife here is like, hammering and sawing yeah it's it's funny with magic like i i remember when i was a teenager i i wanted to build this thing so i could do a piece of magic but i didn't want to i didn't want anyone else to know the secrets so like i learned how to solder when i was 18 because i needed to build this thing and yeah. i you know so Got it. one of the things that you learn as a magician is that you can learn anything uh you just have to you you know, you just you just need the idea first, right? And then you just start connecting the dots to it. It's like I when, need to learn to solder. Okay, right. It's then then all of the things you don't know just become. Oh, I need to learn this skill. I need to learn yeah. this skill. When you learn to play guitar, you can learn the scales and you can learn the chords and you can play that. You use those skills to play any number of songs. But that's not really true with magic. Um, you know, if you learn to make a coin disappear you've learned to make a coin disappear. But that doesn't apply to card magic. It doesn't apply to... Ah, uh, so, so it. to start over in many ways from to, scratch. Every depend- illusion is its own discipline. And so one of the results of that is you, you become very good at getting better at things and, and identifying what are the skills I need, what are the skills I don't have, how can I get those skills... And some of them are ridiculous, like learning to solder or... You what's, know, the, what's the thing that you know how to do that's the most like... I know how to do this. This is the weirdest thing to be able to know how to do. I mean, there are some sleight of hand moves with decks of cards that, uh, with cards that have no application outside of. <laughs> it's like I have become really good at this pretty esoteric skill. <laughs> right. Oh, that's so interesting. And then, so at any given time, you have different new parts of your show that are in various stages yeah. of development. Right, research and development, yeah. And, and you know, the, one of the problems that I have with magic is it takes so long, because the way it works is you, you sit down and you think about sitting in the audience and, and you try and put yourself in the position of someone watching the performance mm-hmm. and you think, what, what could I show them that would best communicate this experience that I'm trying to give them? How can I take their breath away? And once you have that vision, then you have to find a way to m- make the method work, right? You can't, you can't um, start out by saying, well, I've got this tool that I know how to use, this secret mm-hmm. magic tool, mm-hmm. what can I do with it? Um, because then you just end up doing magic that everybody else has done. So you start with this grand impossible vision, yes. and then you just sort of bang your head against the wall for, for weeks yeah, or months yeah, yeah. or years until you can do it. Actually, my work functions like that. Okay. I get the, it's big, 
It's like, uh, sometimes it's architectural. This is what that space would feel like after two hours. Yeah. Like a tour. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll just get a, like an idea that's like, if you could communicate that and people in an accessible way, well, that would be amazing. Right. Because right. you've never seen somebody make that accessible to people in a way that's like, oh, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? So I for, for me, it often the thing that bursts, it bursts into flames up ahead in the road. Yes. And then it's like... I love that way of saying it, yeah. The thing I'm working on right now, and, and I, al I always, I, this is only in the past maybe few years, it's the absurdity now. Uh, last year's tour, I, I did a two-hour show on the word holy. Okay. It's the absurd, it's 2000, well, last year was 2018. It's 2018, I'm going to go around the world doing a two-hour one-man show about the word holy. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? The the absurdity, the ridiculousness of it is part of the clue. Right. Um, the, the, uh, that, like there's something, that you, something smiles within you. Like, uh, that's um, like curiosity is in there. Yeah. Is that even possible? Uh, the risk, the challenge, the, um, well, wouldn't that be an interesting hunt? Right. Um, and then you're just working your way towards that. And the steps become, well, then just follow the steps. Right. What would I need to do to lead yeah. the audience to that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I often built into it is uh, a profound sense of, I don't know if I could pull that off. Yeah. Which is for sh all the lights on my dashboard start blinking green. Yeah. I don't you have green lights on your dashboard? That's a weird metaphor. But like, you know, like I'm sure with you, like I don't know if I could pull that off. Well, I can think of a few things more enjoyable than finding out. Do you know, I love that. I love that <laughs> sense of, of watching a performer try to punch above their weight. Absolutely. I once went to see, uh, have you ever seen U2 perform? Absolutely. So I, I yes. uh, when we were in college, Catherine and I, my wife Catherine, um, we, we skipped class so we could drive to Chicago and watch a U2 show. And mm -hmm. the cheap tickets Which tour? Uh, would be Vertigo Tour. Yes, I remember that. The, yeah, 2004. The, the cheap tickets were the standing tickets. So yes. we could only afford the standing tickets. Yes. And just by, we didn't get there super early, but just by virtue of getting lucky and the way the crowd shifted during the show, we found ourselves right up by the front because uh, the stage sort of came out into the audience, yes. right? And and I remember, I remember watching uh, Bono lead up to, it was on Bad, I think, um, the song. And, and, you know, it builds and builds and builds, and then there's this one note that that he either hits or he won't. Yeah. And, and I could see, I could see the struggle. You know, when you see it on TV or you see it on on video, it's all glossy and polished. But you I, can see the physiological, the visceral element, right? Of... The fighting to get mm -hmm. this note, and and every it it, it was electrifying for mm -hmm. the audience because we were no longer just watching something; we were all rooting, yeah, rooting right, right, for right. the band. Who were trying to pull yeah, yeah, off this yeah. thing that like felt it felt impossible. Like there's no way they're going to do this, and and then the moment comes and he hits the note, and it just, it's like you wanted to hug the person next to you and and just celebrate for a moment. It, 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 it was profoundly magical, and 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 it was just charged with that. Absolutely, you know, it, and you realize how many of their songs, sometimes the key that that you are singing it with them in, the key's like a half step modulated higher. Okay. It's just a bit, you have to uh, work to get to it. Right. 
it's not low. You have to go higher than you normally would. Right. So even your your physicality has to reach. Right. You're just rising a touch. up. To, yeah. 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 So so it so there's all this thing that's happening. I don't know why I just want to sing along because it's inviting you to ascend. Yeah. Every cell in your body. Oh, that's so great. So you now. So right now, when you go back to Iowa next couple of days. Yeah. You'll go back to your studio, whiteboard, oh, yeah. and there are things you're working on. I do. Yeah, I've got some new illusions that are... I I don't know how close I am um, to, to, you know, taking them... In yeah. the journey from the notebook to the stage, yeah. there are a lot of bumps, and you don't always know how many bumps and, and, oh, got it. and roadblocks got it. and um, side routes you've got to take before you get there. Um, but I also, you know, I, I spent four years writing Here is Real Magic, and in that time, I... I discovered that I, re I really appreciate working outside of my training. Uh, imagine yeah, yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. That, that for years, everything you had to say about life and living and hope and fear and God and love and politics and anger and, and frustration, you know, everything you had to say was channeled through card tricks, right? Two things would happen. <laughs> First, you get pretty good at card tricks. And the second is you'd build up this this incredible pressure to this almost like desperation to communicate. And when I when I started writing, it was this, you know, writing is hard as in its own way, but but it's certainly more efficient than than card tricks. And so I I, I discovered this I don't know, I, I I appreciation for communicating with writing and I don't want to yes. let that go. So good. Well do keep writing. Yeah. Keep writing. Uh, Here is Real Magic is the book by Nate Staniforth, S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H, A Magician's Search for Wonder in the Modern World. Uh, available wherever profound books by working magicians who can solder are sold. <laughs> um, where can people find you or find out more about tour or shows or that kind of thing? Um, you know, my website is just natestaniforth.com. But but if you have to do anything, just you know, you can just search for the name of the book. Here is real magic, and that's Great. that's the best introduction. You don't have to read it; just you know, buy a couple copies and <laughs> give them to your friends. Well, thank you, um, thank you for coming by the back house. Yeah, thank um, you. Rob. I I read this and I was like, oh, this guy and I, we're gonna have so much to talk about. Uh, and I was so it was so kind of you to listen to me read you your book. <laughs> no, it, I'm honored to be here. You're you know I. I've had your audiobooks and your podcast with me. You know, when you oh, when, wow. when you tour, at least I drive all the time, like, mm. you know, overnight, late nights, mm -hmm. and um, I've had your, your work with me for a long time. Oh, wow. So it's fun to be a part of it now. Thank you. That's fantastic. All right, my Robcast friends, there you go. Another new friend for us. Grace and peace be with you. <laughs>